Welcome to the Woodridge Baptist Church Podcast. For more information about what's happening in the life of our church, visit our website at www.woodridge.org. Enjoy the podcast. Well, it's good to see you, my friends. I hope you had an awesome week. I'm going to invite you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. As we continue, we've been looking at this letter that Paul wrote to the church at Corinth. And he wrote this letter largely because he had gotten word from them. They had reached out to him. Now, that makes sense to me because he's the guy that started the church. And after he planted the church, he handed it over to some leadership in the church. And then he goes off to start another church. This is kind of what Paul does. The church of Corinth was the church he had stayed at the second longest of any church that he had planted, aside from Ephesus. Uh, and so he gets this letter back from, some, from the house of Chloe. And what they, they rise, they're like, hey, Paul, there's some things going on here that probably aren't great. And we thought, actually, they weren't, probably weren't great. They weren't great. And so we're reaching out to you because people are believing things that aren't true, but they're allowing it to come into the doors of the church, and that's not a good thing. Basically, the culture is infusing itself into us rather than, frankly, us really more infusing ourselves into the culture. That's got to stop. Uh, but it's also causing divisions in the group. And so how effective are we going to be as a church if doctrinally we're divided? And honestly, just in general practice, we're divided. Basically, here's what it's saying. We're a mess. We're a mess. And man, we need your help. So could you speak some truth to us? Paul's like, yep. And so he writes, <laughs> he writes this letter. Uh, he wrote them more than once. Scholars would say he probably ended up writing this church four letters. First Corinthians is actually not even the first letter that he wrote to them. There's a lost letter, right? So he speaks some truth to them. One of the things that they were running into, as we're going to be looking into 1 Corinthians chapter 14, had to do with the practice of spiritual gifts, something that he's been talking about for a little bit. But there are two really in chapter 14 that he's going to be focusing on. One has to deal with tongues, and the other has to deal with prophecy. As you can imagine, when it comes to spiritual gifts, strangely, you would think, this is great. Because not everybody has every spiritual gift. I don't, and neither do you. And so we should be thankful that we have all kinds of people with all kinds of gifts to do the full work of the church. Sounds good, right? Here's the problem. What was going on in the church was some of them were looking at the gifts that they had, and they were acting like what they had was more important than what maybe one of the other brothers or sisters in the church had. And Paul was like, cut it out. No, we need every single one of these gifts. One isn't more important, it's that they are in fact just different. So you might function differently in the church, but as he talks about the body, he's like, we need the head to be the head, and we need the toes to be the toes. And we need all of that working well together. So none of this really should have been a source of division in the church, but well, here they were. Here they were. Does that sound anything like what you see in, I don't know, I'm just throwing this out there churches today? Uh, to me, the answer is yes. So you have an ancient problem that is also a current and common problem. So I'm going to zoom in in chapter 14 on a couple of things that they said were causing some concerns in the church. Here's the fun part. This is a controversial passage. Isn't that fun? Uh, namely, whether or not, and this is the question, whether or not certain spiritual gifts actually are still around now. Nobody was really wondering whether or not there were certain spiritual gifts that were active then in what's often called the apostolic age, in the time when you had the eyewitnesses and so forth. But the question is, did, did these gifts continue to go on? 
All right, are you ready for a little bit of a, of a, of a survey? Are you ready? All right, so note takers get ready because here's the, basically the three main views. And I'm gonna give you a snapshot and then we'll get into the text. There's a view that's called cessationism. I've actually provided it for you on the screen. And for those of you that brought your phones, you can just take a picture of it if you want to. Here's basically the idea behind cessationism. Gifts like prophecy and tongues and healing have stopped. They were real for a certain amount of time in the life of the church, but they have stopped for today. However, I don't buy this view. Just letting you know up front. And part of the reason I don't buy it is because of, well, Paul. He says at the end of chapter 13 that these gifts will remain until we see Christ face to face. We haven't seen that yet. And so I don't think that these things have stopped. There's a second view, usually called uh, holiness Pentecostalism. And the big idea behind this view is these gifts are in full operation today. And if you're not exercising these gifts fully, you should question a lot about your spiritual life. Maybe you should even question your salvation. For example, if you haven't spoken in tongues, then maybe you need to be questioning your salvation. I'll just let you know up front, I don't buy that view. There's a third view that I think is kind of hitting in the middle of those two views that basically says this. These gifts that Paul's talking about in 1 Corinthians 14, they're in full operation, though not every believer experiences them or even has them. That would make sense. I mean, Paul has just already said in this letter, are all apostles? And the answer is, no, some are, some aren't. Does everybody have the gift of teaching? And the answer is, no, some do and some don't. So why would this be any different? And I think the answer is, it's not any different. Like Paul says in chapter 14, verse one, here's what he says, pursue love, like pursue that. And earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, gifts, especially that you may prophesy. He says, so desire these things, and that's fine. Here's the thing. I'm going to give you two examples in chapter 14. Let's start with the first. So he talks in chapter 14 about the gift of tongues. Have you ever wondered what that, what that is, though? Like, if you're reading the Bible and you, you stumble into something, that you go, I wonder what that means. This would be a good time to ask that question. What does tongues actually mean? Let's go back to the book of Acts so that I can give you an example that I think will help out. In Acts chapter two, there was this incredible movement of God. You'd already seen Christ. He had been on the earth. He had died. He had bodily risen. And then you see in Acts chapter two, what's called the day of Pentecost. And here's the way that it reads. It says, when the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. And then suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven, filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now notice what this is. This isn't something that they produced themselves. The last part was, this is something that the Holy Spirit did through them. And this is the key. If you look at verses five and six, it says, now there were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. And when they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment. Well, how would you, how would you feel about it? Right? They came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Did you catch that? You have people that are coming from where? Literally every nation, they've descended into a common space. You have people that are speaking. This is the key. They were speaking human languages, 
But the catch is, is they were speaking languages that were unknown to the one speaking it. Now that would probably catch your attention if you were standing there. Is that fair? I mean, if you're watching a person that cannot speak Aramaic, all of a sudden they start speaking Aramaic, are you gonna think that's cool or not? They thought it was pretty cool. And this is exactly what's happening. That the Holy Spirit had given them an ability that they previously did not possess. And what it is that they were proclaiming was Christ crucified and Christ resurrected. It was for the good and the building up of the church, but it was also the proclamation of the good news to the people that needed it. That's what it was. You see this again in Acts chapter 10, verses 44 and 45. Let's take a look at it. It says, while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers, that basically that just means Jews that had become Christians. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter, they were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on Gentiles. In other words, this stuff's falling on everybody. The Gentiles were speaking a language they didn't know, but that others, namely the Jewish people, recognized. And notice once again, it really caught their attention. Frankly, it would catch my attention. You know, not to, it, it just uh, like a year or so ago, uh, I was talking with a missionary. Uh, he's, he's overseas. He's been overseas for, for, for some time, like eight years now, I think. And he was talking about something that had literally happened to him one time in his life. And he's talking about how he and his wife were, were traveling kind of from village to village. And they were there to, to share the gospel with people that they were encountering them, right? And they went into this one village and they'd been trained in a very specific language. They knew that. The problem was they came into this other village and nobody spoke it, <laughs> right? So they come in and they start speaking and they realize we have a problem here. Nobody understands anything that we're saying. And just so you know, it's hard to get anywhere when that's happening, right? They all just sit there, maybe smiling at you, but looking very confused. And he said, this has literally happened one time. He said, as the day progressed and we went kind of into the village, he said, we started to have conversations with people and they, just like you saw in Acts chapter two and Acts chapter 10, he said, for whatever reason, we were given an ability to communicate with these people in something that we didn't even know. And the people in that village came to Christ that day. See, this is, this is the thing. What you see in Acts chapter two, what you just read in Acts chapter 10, is that was a spirit-given ability to do something that naturally they couldn't have done on their own so that the gospel of Christ could be proclaimed. Does it happen today? Seems like it does. That's an example of tongues. But there's also this example of prophecy. Look at, at 1 Corinthians 14, 3. He says, on the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for, pay attention, upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. That is why they're opening their mouth, is for upbuilding people, to encourage people, and to console people. Let, let me give you a little bit on prophecy in scripture. Um, here's what it usually is. The saying goes, it's often forthtelling, not foretelling. It's more about a proclamation of something that has already happened rather than it is about a prediction of a future. Let me give you an example. In the earliest days, when Christ, after Christ had risen from the dead, 
he gives this commission to the women first. He says, I want you to go into the villages ahead and I want you to tell them that I've risen. The women were given the message to go share of the resurrection of Jesus. That's a forth telling. Anytime you're sharing of scripture or anytime that you are sharing of Christ, you are forth telling. That's one of the meanings of prophecy in scripture. Fair enough. Here's another one, is that you're given words of discernment that would be good for upbuilding a brother or sister, to encourage them, and maybe even to console them. You have words of wisdom. Let me give you an example from scripture. In John 4, Jesus reveals to the woman at the well that she had five husbands. You remember that? He's just meeting this lady. She walks up. He's like, yeah, you've had five husbands. If you're that lady, do you think that would catch your attention? And by the way, the guy you're shacking up with, he's not your husband. That would really catch your attention, right? In other words, Jesus had a supernatural discernment into the life of this woman and could speak to her for her upbuilding. You get it? Sometimes prophecy is that. And sometimes what prophecy is, is just a God-given wisdom to you for the good of the people that are around you. Uh, this is an application of a spiritual truth into today's circumstances. It could be into the life of your family. It could be into the life of your friends. Did you notice Solomon did this a ton in Proverbs? Why, why did he write Proverbs? And the answer is so that he could train his son up. That's why he wrote it. I want to impart wisdom to you so that you know how to do life well. Isn't it good that we have people with this kind of spiritual gift, just deep and profound wisdom so that they can speak into our lives so that our lives are better. We make better decisions because we have those people around us. You could probably think of some people like that in your life. Is that fair? I mean, for me, I was blessed. It started with my mom and dad. Not everybody has that. And I get that. You could probably think of your own. In all of this, especially when it comes to prophecy, I want you to pay very close attention. First Thessalonians 5.21. It says, test everything and hold fast to what is good. Not everything that is said is godly. Be careful. You know, not terribly far from here is Waco, Texas. And some of you might remember when David Koresh you know, builds his compound. Well, it started in Palestine, Texas, but they moved to Waco, Texas. You probably would remember this thing going up in flames, right? But what would have been a good way to test the message of David Koresh? Because he was literally claiming to be the second coming of Christ. Here's where I would have started. And I'm just throwing this out there. Anytime a man separates a husband from his wife, and starts to have sexual relationships with that man's wife and impregnating them, you don't pass the test of scripture. Whatever else this guy is saying, he has absolutely blown it. And at that point, I would be done. I don't know about you. This is why we have that word in 1 Thessalonians 5.21. You don't test it by your opinion. Your opinion might not be that great either, but you test it by the word of God. Test it, right? You should be able to go home today and test the things that I say. The people of the Branch Davidians would have done well to have gone home and maybe test the words by the life of David Koresh and look and say, this stuff is not adding up. It's not adding up. But notice he goes on in 14.5. Here's what Paul says. He said, I, I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. What does that even mean? 
Well, not everybody has this gift, so it can't mean everybody. You already know that. Here's basically the way of understanding it. I'd love it if y'all had this, but you don't. But if you're seeking gifts, like you said in verse one, seek these things, go for prophecy. If you're gonna pick one, pick that one. And here's why. is because you see it in verse six. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues. Unless someone interprets so that the church may be what? Built up, edified. That's what the gifts are for. All right, I'll give you a little bit of a test. Are y'all ready? We have an audience participation component right now. Okay, are you awake and ready? All right, now on the count of three, I want all of you to tell me what you ate for breakfast this morning. Are you ready? All right, one, two, three. All right, let's do lunch yesterday. All right, now here's what, I, you're gonna be like, I can't even remember yesterday, but you gotta work with me here. On the count of three, I want you all to say out loud what it is you ate for lunch yesterday. Are you ready? One, two, three. I am sure breakfast and lunch yesterday were delicious, but I'll be honest, I didn't hear anything. I did not hear one thing that any of you said, not one. Let, let me tell you why I just did that to you. Is <laughs> because chaos doesn't build a church up. Chaos doesn't build a church up. Paul says this in verse seven of chapter 14. He gives an example of the point that I just made, and thank you for participating. He said, if even lifeless instruments such as the flute or the harp do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? What is he even saying there? You get it from the example that I just gave by saying, hey, what did you have for breakfast today? If everybody is shouting their own opinion on top of each other, it is noise. And the other example that he gives here is, is basically for those of you that have ever been to a band concert and everybody is playing at their own tempo and they're playing their own notes and it doesn't sound great and you go, that's not music, you would be absolutely right because they're not playing in sync with each other. And you sit there and go, that is an indiscriminate, it's a blob of sound is what it is. And that's his point in verse seven. And Paul says, yeah, and the church isn't made for that. We're not made for that. Instead, verse 12, strive to excel in building up the church. Now, this must have been a problem. I mean, he's talking about it, right? And he tells you one example you find in verses 33 to 35 of a particular group in the church that he has to call out. Now, you know that this had to be, this letter was read out aloud in the church. So imagine being sitting there and Paul's like, and now I've got to talk to the ladies. Uh-oh. <laughs> oh, no. And they're all there. Here's what he says in verses 33 to 35. He says, as in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches. Ladies, don't stand up and walk out. Hang on. <laughs> Hang on. He says, for they're not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there's anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Well, that's clear. Y'all want to go home now? Here's what it can't mean. It can't mean that literally women can't speak in church. It can't mean that. And we already know that because in the 11th chapter, he already talked that women will prophesy and pray in church. We already know it. Paul already said it. Something else has to be going on here. And I think what's going on here is you had a group of women in the church that were speaking in ways that were disruptive to the church. 
It was correcting that. So in Corinth, there were groups interrupting each other while the service was going on. Some were just crying out in tongues during the gathering. Others were just standing up in the middle going, hey, I have a word from the Lord. And other people are like, that wasn't a word from the Lord. That was a word from you. That's basically what's going on. And Paul says, I've got a word from you. And he goes full on Dr. Evil here. Zip it. Zip it. Not your turn to talk. You need to be quiet. Now, I can imagine that that would be difficult to hear. But if you're hurting the church, it's time to be quiet. That's why he says this. Uh, No interpreter, be quiet. Cutting someone off as they're speaking, be quiet. Being opportunistic and trying to steal the moment, it ain't about you. Be quiet, be quiet. And even if something is being taught in the church and you go, gosh, I don't know. Remember, we've already been told to test the spirit of teaching. There's nothing wrong with that, but there's a time and a place. And this is why he says, go home, talk with your husband. When he says that, he says, ask your husband. It doesn't mean your husband knows everything. Wendy already knows that. (laughs) I don't know everything. But you go home and the word ask means interrogate it. Search it out together. And here's why. is because you don't want to be disrespectful to who is speaking. You don't want to be disrespectful to maybe your husband. If you're like saying something against him as the church is gathered. It's not the place where go home. Work through these things together. Find a common page and then walk out. Walk out together. Here's another reason that God gave these gifts. Paul actually quotes in this Isaiah 28. And you see it in verses 21 and 22. It says, in the law it's written, by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people. And even then they won't listen to me, says the Lord. Did you catch something there? It's kind of interesting. The gift of tongues is not even primarily for believers, but unbelievers. It's a sign. It's a sign. And he quotes Isaiah 28 because there was something going on at that time. You had Israel, basically, it's like uh, George Costanza here. You know, I've got a problem with you people, and you're going to hear about it, right? It was basically Festivus, except God's the one that's got problems. I mean, Israel had just completely gone their own way. And there does come a point where God says, look, I've been kind and patient and merciful. Now I'm just getting ticked. And what you have is the Assyrians are standing at the doorstep of Jerusalem. All this time, God has said, look, this doesn't have to happen to you, but trust me, I'm not here to shield you and you just get to do whatever you want all the time, no matter what you think or or with no regard to what I think. It doesn't work like that. I will stop blessing you. All you gotta do is stop what you're up to. And they're like, we're not gonna pay attention. He's like, well, the Assyrians are at your door. So you might want to pay attention. Because, and this is what he says, if you don't, then you're going to have foreigners that are filling your streets and speaking tongues that you have never heard before. That's what's happening in Isaiah chapter 28. And just so you know, about 100 years later, the city was completely taken over. And so you had the people that once lived there that are now looking around going, what has happened to this place? Look at the chaos that's here. And God was saying, I told you that before it started. 
I told you that before any of this began. See, you remember earlier I said one great example of the gift of tongues, because it can be tricky on, on, on what Paul's talking about here, was to go back to the book of Acts and to the day of Pentecost. And we learned something there in Acts chapter 2. And what it is that we learned is Peter, who's going out, Peter who had denied Christ, who was restored to gospel ministry, has this amazing moment, this God-given moment where they are proclaiming the gospel to people. And Acts chapter two says, from all of the nations which had been scattered about, they had come to a common place and they had been given a gift by the Holy Spirit. It says literally a language was distributed to them so that they could speak to all of the people that were coming together and so that they could share about Jesus with them. A language had been distributed. And all of this goes back to a moment in scripture that you may not be thinking about right now, but you should. And it was a moment that goes back into the book of Genesis and it's the Tower of Babel. At the Tower of Babel, you had people that said, you know what, we're going to seek to build up. So uh, basically an edifice that would go all the way to the sky. Another way of saying, we're gonna draw heaven down to us and we're going to assume its place. And as a result of that, God says, no, I'm going to confuse you as a people and I'm going to confuse your language. And what they did after that is they were scattered over the nations. They'd been worshiping these other gods. And God says, hey, if you want them, then great. You can go and be under them. Out you go. And the result of all of that was an absolute chaos Nations against nations, cultures against cultures, languages against languages. And then in Acts chapter two, boom, they all come back in and God distributes them a gift to speak to them what would bring them all back together. And the answer is him. I will bring you all back together. God did something in this gift. As I said, it's not just for believers, but what Paul had just said is this gift was primarily for the unbelievers. And why? So that they can know what you've got. They can know what you've got. So I'm gonna give you a challenge this morning, my friends. If you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, one, let me encourage you to protect the order and the integrity of the church. Paul is talking about that here. Build others up. Encourage them. Encourage them. Comfort them. That's what he's talking about here. But also this morning, I want to speak just for a second. Maybe you're here and you're searching. Maybe you're searching. First of all, I'm glad that you're here. But there's something that I want you to know, and I love the way that Tim Keller says it. Mercy and forgiveness must be free and unmerited to the wrongdoer. If the wrongdoer has something to merit it, it isn't mercy. But, the for, but forgiveness always comes at a cost to the one that is granting the forgiveness. It always does. And that's true whether you're talking about your relationship with your friends, maybe your spouse, maybe your children. I don't know. Forgiveness always comes at a cost to you when you give it. Because what it shows is that you forgive something when you've been wronged. It comes at a cost to you. And when you give it, you are embodying the mercy of God, just like Jesus extended to you tremendous grace and mercy. Which is exactly why when people that are searching and they come into the church, one of the things that stands the, the most at odds with the good news of Jesus is to watch Christians not act like this. 
to literally not be forgiving of each other as Christ has forgiven us. It just doesn't make any sense. Forgiveness will always come at a cost to you. It will. The cost that it came to Christ was his own life. And he said you were worth that. That you were worth that. That the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. That's costly, but it's still real, and it's true. Here's what Keller went on to say. He says, God's grace and forgiveness, while free to the recipient, are always costly for the giver. From the earliest parts of the Bible, it was understood that God God could not forgive without a sacrifice. No one who is seriously wronged can just forgive the perpetrator. But when you forgive, that means you absorb the loss and the debt. You bear it yourself. And that's why forgiveness is costly. And this is why, for those of you that are here and you're looking, I want you to remember this. This is what the gospel, which just means good news, this is what it means. It means that we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we would ever dare believe. More than we would ever believe. And yet, at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we had ever dared hope. That's the gospel. And I'm telling you, it's for you. It's for you. We hope you have enjoyed the podcast. For more information about our church, visit www.woodridge.org.